So many memories have come flooding back. I put this on and repeat, just crying my eyes out. It made me feel so bloody alive. This song really nails the feeling of nostalgia for a place. And we all just stopped talking and just stared at the radio. Like, what is that? It's part of the noble genre of songs by women about masturbation. I love it. I love that song so much. Box. Meet people through their music with Ash Berdebez on FBI. Big ups to Tia Newling for taking you through the mornings. It's the first time I've heard her dulcet tones on the radio and the first time I met her was the other night at a warehouse party where the walls were literally sweating. It is so nice to see you in a more dignified position, Tia. So uh, today on Out of the Box, today's guest got on stage at Carriage Works about a month ago with a wonderfully diverse group of dancers to accept the Smack Award for Best on Stage. Nothing to Lose was the name of the performance and it got rave reviews. Loads of Sydney Siders loved it and voted for it. So it features a cast of bigger bodied dancers and my guest on Out of the Box today was artistic associate Kelly Jean Drinkwater is her name and she's recognised internationally for her work in radical body politics and also just being recognised for being generally fierce and having really great taste in music, which is part of the reason I got you on today. Kelly Jean, welcome on Out of the Box. Thanks, Ash. Nice to be here. So we've got a really good bunch of songs coming your way. And first, I want to talk a little bit about Nothing to Lose. So for people who didn't actually manage to catch Nothing to Lose, don't know anything about it, mm-hmm. quick descriptor. Well, Nothing to Lose uh, is a, is and was a, a, a show that was done by Force Majeure um, that explored the fat experience in a dance theatre context. And uh, basically I was approached um, three years ago now um, by Kate Champion, who was the artistic director of Force Majeure, to come to with, work with her on a show about, about why we don't see bigger bodies on stage and also just to break down some of the kind of um, experiences or, or, gen- or preconceptions that people might have about fat people and the way they live their lives and how they engage with their bodies. So you were kind of on board originally as a bit of a, a kind of like an experience translator to make sure that, mm. you know, as a choreographer, is that the kind of idea that she approached you with? Um, yeah, I think what, one of the things and why this show, why I was, so, I was so interested in the show is that Kate, um, you know, Kate comes from a dance background. She's a, um, she doesn't have the lived experience of being in a bigger body like I do. And she uh, knew that in order to make a show that was actually going to be interesting and authentic and and talk to this um these ideas that she needed to work with someone who had the lived experience of being a performer in a bigger body and so she sought me out and then um and and found me that way and then I came on board as an artistic associate which basically meant that I worked with her on everything around the concepts um the cast who what sort of stories we wanted to tell how we wanted to tell it um and she she worked on the movement obviously she's a, a, a choreographer so I would explore themes, themes with that I thought were interesting with her and also with the cast. It was very interactive um, with the cast and very kind of um, collaborative in that way. Um, and, yeah, and then we would sort of workshop that all together. So, yeah. Awesome. And so you did end up putting a call out at the beginning for dancers. So how did you how did you go writing a call out for this? Yeah, the call out was actually really hard to write. Um, I think that because not, not nothing like this had been done much well, as far as I know, it hadn't been done in Australia before in terms of an established choreographer and dance theatre company uh, working with this topic and looking for performers that would be 
you know, um, able to give of themselves like we needed them to. I think that we, in order to, you know, it came down to language and semiotics. I mean, the, the word fat is still contentious. So, you know, I wrote my first draft and it was like, we're looking for awesome, fierce, fat dancers. And and then I went to post it to people and I asked my friends to share and they were like, um, I wouldn't send that to my friend who I think would be amazing because I think that that word would offend them and it might sort of repel people from uh, applying. So we had to word it very specifically and um, I think we got it right. We needed to be as inclusive as possible. We also wanted it to be not so specifically gendered. There's so much came up with this call out, you know, around the gender of of body politics and who identifies as fat and, and, and also the idea that, um, you know, you, that I had reclaimed that word as a fat activist. I use the word fat to describe my body. But still a lot of people don't and still people in the cast don't use that word because they see it as being a negative word. Yeah, And I think you can reclaim it for yourself without necessarily being okay with other people reclaiming it on your behalf. So if you're yes. going to walk in a room and be like, hey, my fat friend, you know, yeah. like someone is going to be kind of like uh, not so comfortable with that. Yeah. But if a friend walks into that room... It's going to be a completely different That's scenario. Right. I, I trust you. I like you. We're on the same page. Yeah, and I think there was a lot of uh, scepticism about the production at first, and um, rightly so. I mean, I think the way that fat people are kind of, or bigger people, bigger bodied, or however you want to describe um, larger people, uh, are portrayed in sort of not so much mainstream, but any kind of media, um, it has traditionally not been particularly... Um, uh, even sort of neutral, it's, it's, it usually has a, a very strong sort of opinion based around how that's portrayed or, or fat people are always portrayed as the funny best friend or, you know, all that sort of thing. And then when you put that in a dance context, there was a lot of scepticism. I mean, I was skepti sceptical the first time I met Kate Champion, but I soon realised that she was coming from the right place. Yeah, it's a very brave move on her part because I think especially when you're not, when you're not living that experience as well, just approaching people, I can imagine that would be really hard for her. Um, no, I, don't, I mean, I don't think it's it's brave actually. Like it's that's, not brave? No, I mean, that's one of the words that used to... That that gets thrown around about this show and the work that I do a lot and brave sort of to me sounds like um it's a little bit kind of uh patronizing actually yeah. you know when actually, you think now, about now that it, now that I look yeah. back at it it sounds patronizing I'm just thinking on on Kate's part yeah. that it's kind of like I think when you're not part of something you're asking to portray yes I think that that might be a bigger step than for example, if you're already part of a community yes. of people who are body proud and, yeah. and are bigger, then it would be a smaller step. That's right. I mean, yeah, I think, in the, I mean, she was, she knew straight off the bat that she needed to engage with a, like an artist and a person and a, and a collective of, of, of cast that, that would bring that lived experience into the production and that's why it would work. And she knew that if she didn't do that, then um, the show wouldn't have been what it was. Yeah. yeah. And you got an awesome response to your first call out. Um, yeah. So how many people responded? Oh, we had, so we did an Australia-wide call out, um, which was amazing. And I think we had, oh, I think it was like 100 people responded. And we had auditions in Sydney over two days. We flew people from Melbourne and Darwin. Um, and we, like the auditions was when both Kate and I, were just like, this is going to be great. This is going to work. Because at that point, we didn't know what we were going to, who we were going to meet. And, and, and if it was a sort of idea that had, you know, legs, albeit fat ones. And so, you know, one, after we did the auditions, and I think within five minutes, we were all just like, yes, this is going to be amazing. Um, yeah, so we, we sort of auditioned for the core cast back in 2013. Um, we did two auditions. And then 
did some creative development um, and then ended up doing a second lot of auditions a year later for the ensemble cast as well. So there was a core cast in Nothing to Lose of um, seven dancers and then we had an ensemble which uh, was an extra nine and I was one of those as well. So. Nice. So we're about to move on to our first track for the hour and it is Seema Sue. But actually, I wanted to ask you, because with that call-out process, you also got some some other responses that you could use in the in the performance, uh, some unwitting collaborative writers on the project, if you know what I mean. Um, you mean like trolls? Yes, yes. basically, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, what was amazing, and also another reason why we knew that this show was going to be interesting at the very least, was that the day we announced the call-out, so at, at this point, this was, you know, year, three years ago, we had no idea who was going to be in the show and what the show was at all. We had just put a call-out for performers and an expression of interest. And that day, we were kind of, I wouldn't say flooded, but there was... And a, a furor at the fact that we would even attempt to do something like this. Um, and that was something that really blew me away. Like people saying, how dare you? You, I mean, there was like these kind of established dancers that were talking about how it couldn't be possible for bigger bodies to take to the stage with such an, with such an established company like Force Majeure and at Sydney Festival and that it would be a joke and we would be a laughing stock. Then you had people saying um, that it was going to be sensationalist and it was exploitative. Um, it was quite polarizing from the get-go and you know I was kind of blown away but what we ended up doing is using a lot of not a lot but some of that kind of vitriol and those kind of responses in the show which I love doing so it was kind of like I read it and went oh my god how dare you and then I was like excellent material <laughs> put you in the credits yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right well let's let's whack on some Simo Sue and now what do you feel about Simo Sue why do you want to bring this song on well one of the th parts of my kind of role as artistic associate was that um, I got to curate the sound and work with, you know, the, on the sound and work with people like um, Stereogamous to compose a specific track for the show, which is, was amazing. And also just, you know, music is such an integral part of, of theatre. And I was really keen to use as many sort of Sydney-based uh, musicians and artists as I could. And Simo Su um, is someone that I've known for a long time and I've seen them at various gigs around in um, the inner west and um, I just think they've got this this vitality about them that is really really interesting and and they lovingly uh, let me use one of their tracks to promote the show at, at, in a trailer that we had for Sydney Festival so I wanted to play a song of theirs from their last album that came out last year which is called Vitamins. Vitamins yeah. featuring Zaza Fine and I think Boob Job. Yeah and the, and the song's called Anna Nicole Smith which is also amazing. <laughs> It's an out of the box on FBI 94.5. Kelly Jean Drinkwater is my guest today.
Subscribe to the podcast at fbiradio.com slash podcast.
Yeah, you heard it. We were just playing Janet Jackson on FBI 94.5. Control was the name of that track, and it was brought in by my guest on Out of the Box today, Kelly Jean Drinkwater. Now, can, we, can you kind of give us the visual, and what circumstances does one listen to Janet Jackson Control? Well, when you're eight, when you're eight years old and you're, you know, living in Newcastle and, and you know, I think one... I just had this image of myself as being this chubby little eight-year-old with wild curly hair, listening to that song for the first time, going, yeah, I'm in control and I'm going to do what the fuck I want with my life. And and that's basically (laughs) what she's saying in that song. So, um, you know, I think it's funny, though, because it's all about being autonomous. And, you know, it was Janet finally saying, I'm going to take control of my life, my body and my art. And that kind of, you know, in its inception happened in my little eight-year-old curly-headed brain and and I and that kind of ethos has come through in my all my life really so I thank Janet for introducing me to to autonomy early on yeah, yeah. great role model to have at that age yeah, yeah yeah so so when you were eight years old in Newcastle what kind of <laughs> what kind of a life were you living do you have a big family small family oh wow uh yeah I lived I've got three older sisters and they're much older than me so I was kind of in my own little world a lot when I was that age yeah and just kind of um you know I was always bossing everyone around and running around and, and being a performer and, and you know, like doing shows and and swimming, swimming, swimming. It's always been about that for me. So, yeah. Actually, we have a song coming up soonish about about uh, swimming. But first, I think <laughs> we're going to go with a song by Sonic Youth. So yes. uh, when were you listening to Sonic Youth? Well, I mean, I kind of have this, yeah. What happened was I was like, you know, you eight-year-old, like you know kid listening to pop music and then I started getting into that thing where you would sit up all weekend and watch Rage as like an early tween and um you know I discovered through through my sort of insomnia of those years I I came across this song cool thing by Sonic Youth and I was completely blown away and my little baby feminist brain just kind of went who the hell is that what is male corporate white oppression like (laughs) how do I look that up there's no Google you know like I was kind of like oh my god and there was this babe in like see-through hot pants playing guitar and sounding really bored and I was just like I couldn't stop listening to it and it completely blew me away and it also led me on to sort of find out about Riot Girl and bands like Bikini Kill and you know Babes in Toyland and L7 and The Need and and kind of opened me up to this idea of this loud noisy punk feminist girl bands and this is in Newcastle that you're finding yeah. out about all this without Google without Google pre-Google yeah thank you Rage but um <laughs> yeah so it sort of led me down this path of, of going I like jumping up and down to really loud noisy music especially if female voices are singing it you know and did you start a band? I didn't start a band, but, um, you know, I went to art school in Newcastle in the 90s and um, there was quite a scene happening at the time, an art scene and, and, and a very loud music scene. I think that's one of the joys of growing up in a sort of smallish town, you know, you make your own fun. And so there was a lot of bands happening at that time and I was um, I was a member of a band called The Beef Curtains, um, which <laughs> sang very offensive songs and we didn't know what we were doing and some of them, were, you know, they're all like still friends to this day and I was MC Double D. So I think, you know, that was when I was early on started to bring in my size and my and my my kind of the fuck you nature of, of, of reclaiming my body really early on through bands like The Beef Curtains. So. Man, I really wish that you saved that as a, as a domain name, MC Double D, because that <laughs> thing would be worth millions today. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's <laughs> well, right. Truly. Well, in that case, let's whack on some Sonic Youth cool thing on Out of the Box, FBI 94.5. My guest is Kelly Jean Drinkwater. <laughs>
bit of Sonic Youth on your radio today. My name is Ash Berdevez and I'm joined in the studio today by Kelly Jean Drinkwater, who is the artistic associate on Nothing to Lose, which won a Smack Award just about a month ago. And uh, it's it's a dance theatre performance. And the reason you brought Sonic Youth on was, uh, of course, I feel like everyone in Australia who you know has grown up in Australia should be bringing on at least one song that they found on Rage if they yeah. ever come on the show. <laughs> you know, it's the most formative musical experience for anyone who was alive in the 80s, 90s. Yep. Um, and so you you actually kind of learned a little bit of political well, – you kind of got started a little bit politically as a, as a young lady yes. listening to Sonic Youth. And did that take you to the States? Is that why you moved there? Um, it's not exactly why I moved there, but it definitely was – you know, I was really interested in, um, you know, that whole riot girl scene and, and you know, the, the politics that came out of that. So, yeah, I ended up going um, – I ended up going and living in, in, in California for a while, in Orange County, actually, hilarious. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, I was really interested in the music that was coming out of there and the politics and stuff like that. And I also went to film school there for a couple of years, so that's kind of where my film career started as well. And you started doing film stuff on the side then? Well, I started studying film and then I quickly got work um, in film, like working in the po- like in the props department and art, di- um, art department, which I thought, you know, because I went to art school and I thought I was going to be doing really hands-on in that way, making stuff. Um, and I was, yeah, basically quite quickly got work in the props department on, on really Z-grade movies, which was pretty hilarious. And I did a couple. One of them was called... Um, 
lesbian vampires on Route 666. How amazing is that? That is great. Where can we find this? I don't think it ever got made because <laughs> I've never found it. I've looked for it, but I've never found it. Dang. But yeah, and then, so yeah, that's why I was in the States and then I was there for a couple of years and then I moved to London. So I do wonder what the kind of props you need to make on, on lesbian vampire six, on Route 666. Yeah, I mean, like, it, was a, be... it was a lot of like corpse arms, you know, like yeah. dead, like things. I mean, it's funny because it was like, yeah, it was a lot of gore. <laughs> but I also think I just ended up doing a lot of vampire teeth polishing. But, you know, That's I was, not a I was very, I was a newbie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you got to start somewhere. you got to start somewhere, yeah. All right, well, we're going to take a song in a second from the gossip, but I've, I kind of want to uh, figure out how you found out about the gossip. When was your, when was your first experience? Yeah, I mean, I'd heard them before um, when I, through friends that I'd met in, in the States, but I remember, the, I really clearly remember the first time I actually saw the gossip live, and that was when I had moved to London. And I actually really viscerally remember the minute Beth Dito walked on stage, I could feel my eyeballs turning into love hearts. Like I was just like, oh my goddess, amazing. And she just, here was a woman who like had a body that looked like mine. She was jumping up and down, thrashing around, singing her guts out in her underwear, sweating all over everyone, not giving a fuck. And I fell deeply and madly in love. And yeah, that was kind of around the same time that I started to engage in in fat politics and body politics and really sort of meet people in the community in London and internationally that sort of were talking around this kind of stuff and, and you know, this huge light bulb went on for me and, and it hasn't ever gone out. I think so there's kind of a before and after then. So there is there is life before Beth Ditter and, and before being part of this community and, and being kind of, I guess, like, I don't know, included in yeah. in a movement and then there's, there's after so what was before like well then no for it's you? not quite that clear I mean I think when I was at art school I used to I, I mean one of the reasons I started being in front of the camera I studied photography and I was in my own work because I really at the time noticed there was this really big lack of images around just images of people my size let alone empowered ones let alone of women and so as I was the fattest person that I knew I started being in front of the camera and sort of posing in my own work and so I did investigate that sort of stuff but I felt like you know this is pre you know I'm I'm showing my age, but this is like pre-internet worlds where, you know, you connect with like-minded people and communities and stuff. So I was like, I felt a little bit like I was, um, you know, in a bit of a vacuum and and hadn't connected. So it's not like I hadn't investigated that, my, mm. my body and my artwork in that before I, before Beth the Beth Ditto moment. But um, I think for me, that was when I felt recognised and, or, or yeah, mirrored, I guess, and and that sort of was around the time that I really tapped into the politics and investigated that, and into this kind of community of of people, of of the fatosphere and 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 sort of body politics in general. So yes, well, let's take that track by the gossip, and which one is it? It's Jason's Basement, which it to me this was the first, one of the first songs I loved, and she's just screaming about how you know she's got no no inhibitions and that everyone should just dance with her, and and to me that said a lot. <laughs>
of pre-disco vibes gossip on your radio uh, right there. Brought in by my guest today, who is Kelly Jean Drinkwater. That one's called Jason's Basement. And I actually hadn't heard any of their older stuff. It's really good. Yeah, it's really raw. I mean, yeah, I, yeah we were just saying that, you know, when, that's when I she came out and she was just this powerhouse and, the, you know, this kind of soulful yet, you know, really kind of coming out of that punk ethos, you know, Olympia Washington vibes at the time. And, yeah, their, cha- their sound has really changed, actually. Yeah, yeah, what a goddess. Yes. All right, speaking of goddesses, uh, we're coming up to a few tracks, and I think we've got some Chicks on Speed coming up soon, and we're definitely going to have some beer coming up in the next <laughs> few minutes. So let's talk a little bit about your time in London. So yeah. why did you end up moving to London from the States when, you, when you've been stuffing there, right? Um, yeah, well, basically because I'd started getting work on films, I was at a breach of my student visa in America and they sort of, you know, th- a month in, I got a phone call from the immigration in America saying, you have to go back to school or you have to get out of the country. And I was like, well, I'm actually working in the industry now. Why would I go back backwards and so I was like nah okay uh I'll see ya yeah pretty much (laughs) and I was like I'll just go see what London's like and um yeah I was intending to be there for three months and I ended up living there for nine years nine years yeah yeah what kept you there um I was having so much fun I think um you know London at the time which was like early 2000s I guess was like uh, for me I just met a bunch of incredible artists that were doing really really interesting um, music and fashion and um, that's where I started you know doing things like modeling and um, working with designers and also you know getting like you know trading the boards and getting le- like my emceeing and hosting feet for for club shows and 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 doing you know hosting and stuff like that so yeah it was a really really fun vibrant alive electric time for me yeah sounds lovely yeah actually speaking of modeling I heard that your mum was a model at some point yeah mum yeah. was a model in this in the 60s and, and early 70s so yeah. it runs in the family I know yeah it does I mean she was like you know she was a she did a lot of, um, you know, those kind of Woman's Day kind of vibes, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, but I remember the, that... The, the, the loose hanging pant and the uh, yeah, looking over the shoulder oh, she, with a yeah. benign look on your face. Yeah, yeah. She had that kind of... She was that kind of thing. Look over there, that interesting thing. And look, I'm wearing a linen <laughs> shirt dress. Thing. Laugh at your imaginary friend. Yeah. Smile to your salad. <laughs> Smile at your salad. That was my mum. And in so many ways. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, it was interesting when I started getting into it. Um, I did have a very... Uh, it was a, a quite a lovely moment to be able to, to to ring her and say, "You never would have thought this, Mum, but guess what I'm doing now." And so that was kind of <laughs> quite exciting for me to be able to do. Yeah. What, what did your mum say in response to that? What, what was her reaction? Um, look, my mum completely supports me, and she's completely gorgeous and lovely. She hasn't, she does not get it at all. Um, you know, like she loves that I do what I want to do, but she at the same time still spends a lot of time asking me if I do. I do I really have to wear that? Did you have to? You know, do you have to? wear so much cleavage and you know she's still my mum's very lovely but very conservative so even though she supports me she's she's come around a lot you know but when it first started she she wasn't quite sure how I ended up modeling and being on catwalks but she thought it was amazing do you know what I mean her eyebrows up but she's overwhelmingly happy yes she's like that's amazing (laughs) and she's also kept everything I've ever done like anything I've anytime I've been in print media she's got this big box of stuff and press clippings and stuff so she's very you know she she's very supportive and great that's really really lovely yes so, uh, and then you go into fashion. I have to, I have to give like a little bit of a kind of um, mental picture for people who haven't uh, jumped on the internet and checked out Kelly Drinkwater, Kelly Jean Drinkwater. But um, <laughs> the best thing I have ever seen in fashion at all ever is Ooh. you wearing a skull dress. 
Oh, yeah. I, I checked that out and it is basically like this just straight kind of like cream bodice and then from the hips out, it, it balloons out all, to, all the way to the knees as a massive, massive skull that's contoured and has like the, the sunken eyes and everything yeah. and it is like the coolest thing and I think in that you're walking around London yeah. looking fabulous yeah. and it's just honestly my favourite thing that I've seen in do's. Yay. I mean like that, that dress was made by a friend of mine, Tom Ravenholt in London but um, yeah, during that time I was working with a lot of creatives and stylists and, and fashion designers and running a club called Antisocial with um, uh, with your mum and your dad who were these like, <laughs> they called dad. your mum your dad but now, um, uh, yeah, who uh, ran this club called Antisocial and it was like, you know, a hark back to the club kid kind of days of the 80s and it was everyone had to have like these killer looks or you didn't get in the door and I remember one time, you know, we for a minute there we were like, you know, one of the hottest clubs in London and I remember one time we had this amazing door bitch and she was so awful if you didn't have the right outfit, which sounds really mean and horrible, but it was kind of amazing because it meant everyone inside was just like on point, you know. And anyway, I remember one night Kylie Minogue showed up to the club in jeans and she wasn't allowed in. And that was actually, as an Australian in London, that was like one of my favourite moments. I was like, oh, too bad, Kyle's like, you know, you know, should have been a little bit more on point. Yeah, yeah. Just put in a bit more effort. I think it makes sense, though, because if you think about it, like you go out to a club and if you, you know, the kind of the kind of people that will come in that will be, you know, not really on the same page as everyone else will just like run in looking like whatever. But the people who are kind of there and they're really in the spirit of things yes. and there's some sort of solidarity there and they are informed and they're part of the community, there will kind of be a look there, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like not wanting to judge people for not getting dressed up. But. Yeah, but also for me, I mean, that was when I sort of started to understand the idea of costume as, as performativity and queer kind of utopias that are these clubs and these incredible places where people can really express who they are and express their gender and their sexuality and, and really let fly. And so that was kind of where I really started to investigate that. All right. Well, we've got some chicks on speed and uh, particularly this song. Why? Um, I just feel like this song was my life for a while. Like I feel like I literally just kind of, it was at the time and I would, you know, trash, I basically trashed around Europe for quite a long time, um, going to parties and, and surviving by the skin of my teeth and just having a great old time. And, and this song just kind of, you know, I love the fact that I love chicks on speed and this kind of just spoke to that time in my life called Euro Trash Girl. <laughs> Chicks on Speed. <laughs> Kelly Jean Drinkwater's on your radio today. My name's Ash Berdebears. Here we go. Chicks on Speed. Euro Trash Girl Euro Trash Girl Well, I've been up to Paris and then I, I slept in the park went down to Barcelona and someone broke into my car yeah I've searched the world over for my angel in black I've searched the world over for a Euro trash girl took the train down to Athens and then I, I based in a fountain some Swiss junkie in Turin ripped me off for all my cash. I've searched the world over for my angel in black. I've searched the world over for you, for my Euro trash girl.
CRS on the metro. They, they shook me down for this bribe. On my knees for the searching. When my passport, it finally arrived. Called my mom from a payphone. Sent I'm down to my last. And she said that she would uh, send me to college. And uh, I should call my dad. The waitress that he married, well, she hung up the phone. You know, she never did like me. But I can stand on my own. Sold my plasma in Amsterdam. And then I spent it all in one night. Buying drinks at the Milkweg. For a soldier in red. I've searched the world over for my angel in black. I've searched the world over for your trash girl. Bit of uh, Tricks on Speed, which I think is one of the best band names of all time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you get a really great visual. You get you get the feel of it. Yeah. So I've got Kelly Jean Drinkwater in studio with me today. This is Out of the Box. My name's Ash Berdebez, and that indeed was Chicks on Speed with Euro Trash Girl. Now, we've got a, a song coming up in a moment that has a bit of a language warning on it. Mm. Uh, so a bit of a heads up. And it's by Glory Hole. And so first, I kind of want to ask you, you know, you had spent so much time in London, yeah. like nine years of your life, and yeah. before that, the States. So what brought you back to Sydney? Um, I think what brought me back to Sydney was that I actually, to be honest, I needed to have a little rest. <laughs> <laughs> just needed to pipe went, down and yeah, come back need, to Sydney like it's an old country town. I needed to see a bit of sunshine and, and you know, <laughs> like just go, ah, oh, yeah, okay. And like, you know, London is incredible and collaborative really, it's an amazing place because so many, to survive there as an artist, you have to be totally on your game all the time. And I, I think what I was doing was collaborating a lot, but I was really keen to kind of make my own work and start to push my own practice and I was kind of aware that I needed headspace to do that and I think you know being in London is amazing but you just need headspace to survive there Um, and at the time when I could come back here rent was cheaper it's not anymore but you know rent was cheaper and there was like a really great sense of community of of creative queer community in Sydney Um, and I really liked the art scene it was very DIY and that was what sort of drew me here and then I know I was kind of playing it by ear for a while but I ended up now I've been here for a long time now so I feel really part of the creative community in Sydney yeah yeah and so how long ago was it that you actually came back to Sydney I think it's been like eight years okay yeah and and did you find that I mean like you know 
when you when you come back from overseas, this used to happen much more when it was kind of like back in the eighties before the internet, <laughs> and you come back to Sydney and you start to notice how far behind we are. Yeah. But was there anything in particular that you came back to Sydney and you were kind of like, you guys are. You haven't yeah. really even broached this subject yet. Well, yeah, body politics. I mean, that was the biggest one for me. Uh, you know, having lived in this in London and, and spent a lot of time... Also, when I was living in London, I spent a lot of time in San Francisco and, and really kind of investigated fat politics and body politics there with these hugely established communities of people that talk about that and talk about intersectional queer politics and all of the things that that encompasses. When I came back to Sydney, I... I, there was definitely a, a community of people, radical queers, doing interesting work, but I didn't find uh, that sort of element around fat politics here as much as I had overseas. And it was something I, I knew that I really needed to kind of thrive and, and to investigate my work. And, and so that was something that I was keen to kind of help to establish and, and encourage this dialogue that I felt was missing. Yeah, that was the biggest thing. How did you start to foster, um, you know, body politic aware people you know in um, communities well I mean it's not like they weren't here it's yeah. just that I didn't see it as a community it's not like you know oh, I, I came see. back and no one had heard of body politics and fat <laughs> politics and, you know not not at all they were just not connected I didn't well I wasn't connected to that and I didn't have a sense of I couldn't find the, the community of that of, of fat activists as it were um, and so what I did was actually um, I I I remember one day I was swimming at Coogee Women's Pool and having this moment about how amazing it was and always having loved Acapulco and, um, well, I mean, synchronised swimming, sorry, and um, and just saying, wouldn't it be amazing if we had a bunch of fat girls doing synchronised swimming? We could call ourselves Acapulco. And my friend at the time was like, oh, my God, Acapulco. And it's, it's kind of like a pun on Acapulco. Yeah, and also <laughs> it means water pigs. <laughs> it's really, you know? and I was like, a really cute name. That is the best name ever. And you know how sometimes as an artist you can start with a name and then you don't know what it is but you just know it's amazing and then this thing happens around this idea of yeah. this name, right? So that's what happened with Acapulco. Um, and so I just put it out there that, um, that I was looking to, for – you know, people of size and fatties to to come and learn synchronised swimming with me. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know anything about synchronised swimming. Um, but I thought, hey, let's get together and teach ourselves some synchronised swimming moves as a bunch of fat people. And that's where it started. And, and what, yeah. what, was, what was it like? I mean, basically, what was the first day like where you finally got a group of people who were like, yeah, I want to I wanna swim. I want to learn, learn synchronised swimming. When you first get to the pool, what's the experience like for everyone there? I mean, it was varied. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things, one of the constant themes in my work is reclaiming prohibitive spaces for bigger bodies. And a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of judgment and a lot of kind of shame attached with being a fat person in a swimsuit in public. Um, and so, yeah, I think for me, I had worked through that a lot before because I'm such a water baby and I kind of needed to um, <clears throat> be okay with that and work through that stuff with me. But there were people definitely who were you know, who found it quite confronting. But also I think they were nervous. But then the minute we all walked out as a group of fatties in in swimwear, walking in and getting into the pool together and throwing our legs in the air and, you know, having a great old time and laughing and just, you know, enjoying ourselves and enjoying our bodies. And, you know, I think that what the, the thing that people have said to me since is that there was this incredible sense of relief around, you know, just being en masse, a mass on mass, you know, and in the water. And so, yeah, I think that's why it was uh, such a, a fun thing to be a part of. And we ended up having chapters in um, in Melbourne as well. Oh, so there's, there's other groups that are kind of like, Acapulco, great idea. I'll do yeah. I'll do a local version. Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. And so did it, how did it 
how was like what was the goal? Because you end up making this into a documentary, yeah. but um, was it kind of you know you'd work your way up to a big performance? Is that I mean, it? ideally there wasn't a goal at the first. It was just like let's just do this fun thing. Like yeah. there wasn't a goal, but um, and you know this. I think we just did that fun thing for a while, and it was literally just about the actual act of of, of getting together and, and and being in our bodies and and making friends and 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 and, and then that started these different um, kind of conversations happening and then different groups started from that and you know um the sydney acapulco team kind of went for a couple of years and then um moved everyone sort of moved on but the melbourne team actually did stay focused on a show and ended up doing a performance um and that's what i made the documentary about so oh, that's so cool yeah yeah so we ended up making a documentary in 2013 called acapulco about the melbourne chapters lead up to their first public performance yeah. in Synchronized Swimming, yeah. I like that this is kind of, you know, originally the way it started was kind of like, let's reclaim the space, let's be okay with being in the space like everyone else is. Yeah. Um, I think people who aren't bigger would not really understand that idea of needing to reclaim your space at all. Yeah, Like, yeah. How, how is it that people don't feel like they're able to be in those spaces? Um, I mean, I think it's just this, It's sometimes it's incredibly um, overt and there's, you know, there's, I mean, one of the things about sort of uh, p- other people's judgments around, you know, we're specifically talking about being in a b- bigger body or being a person of size is, you know, one of the things that um, people don't seem to understand is that the nuance and the subtlety of the judgment and the kind of hostility that can be created in certain spaces. And then there's also this incredibly overt stuff as well, like being screamed at, you know, being screamed at from cars, being, you know, trolled on the internet, being, you know, I mean, I think I was spat on once on a beach or, you know, like, so there's this incredibly full on stuff that happens as well. Um, So, you know, it's subtle and it's incredibly in your face. And I think, that all combined um, with engaging in, 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 our, in our kind of the Western Australian media's version of what a ideal body is and, and sort of like this idea of that we all need to be in a certain way, um, you know, leads to this kind of general unease around the world, uh, around the world around you, you know. Um, so I think it's one of those things that it's, I, I mean, if you talk to anyone who's in a bigger body, they'd all exp- would have experienced this kind of hesitation potentially um, around being less clothed in public, whatever that may be. So I think that, yeah, it's it's something that um, yeah. you know, once you recognise it, then you think, okay, well, let's let's challenge this and let's let's see how. Can, you know, for me, I'm like, how can we investigate that actually as a thing, like being, um, you know, not necessarily welcome in places, mm. and then how can we turn it on our heads, which is what we did with Acapulco and and what we did with, you know, dance theatre with with nothing to lose. Yeah. So. I don't know how to phrase this, but I'm kind of like, I wonder if it's harder for women mm. to go in and reclaim those spaces. Not that it's like a competition of like, oh, it's a really hard time for me. But yeah. like, is it is it particularly hard for women, do you think, to reclaim those spaces? Yeah, I mean, I think one, one of the interesting things around this, um, this idea of whether or not, you know, women f- find this kind of body obsession more in- intense than men is, is, you know, I think in my experience... I would agree with that, um, but that's not to negate that it happens to all big people regardless of their gender. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of this kind of obsessional stuff around 
health and, and beauty and, and all those kind of industries are focused very, very much towards female identified people. Uh, and that's just, you know, that's yeah. the fashion industry, the beauty industry, the diet industry, you know, it is all there. So yeah, I, I guess, guess in some yeah. ways it is more. And it was reflected actually in who who responded to the expression of interest for nothing to lose because it was a predominantly female response. And, and we what, what, by what percentage do you oh, think? Oh, like 95. I mean, you know, wow. we had two men in the show um, and, you know, they were amazing um we but we really struggled um we had two men in the core show sorry and and, uh, and men in the ensemble as well um we really had to actively seek out you know mass male identified people to be in the show because they weren't responding to that call out as much so yeah, yeah. maybe it's kind of i don't know with, with women it's kind of like there's a whole lot of language surrounding um women looking good which is kind of mm. like lose weight mm-hmm. or like minimize pores mm. remove body hair yeah. like erase blemishes yeah. and it's kind of just like a lot to do with just slowly becoming a little bit more yeah. uh, invisible in order to fit in with society that's right and that's why so much of what i want to do and and what i respond to is the idea of taking up space taking up unapologetically taking up as much space as you need to be in the world as you are. That's what I love. Awesome. We've got a track by Björk now. Great. Why? Um, Björk, this song, I love Björk. I think she's an incredible alien magical goddess of, of wonder. And, um, this is true. I was very, it was very hard for me to pick a song, but I decided to go with this song, Submarine, because it reminds me of watching synchronised swimming movies with my mum and Esther Williams. And I'm also completely, if anyone knows me, would know that I'm obsessed with anything aquatic. And to me, this song just says it all around how magical the ocean is and how camp synchronised swimming can be off the wonderful album Medulla, which is all entirely made out of voices. Voices, yeah, yeah. There's an amazing documentary about it, actually. Here we go. It's Submarine. One breath away From Mother Oceania Your nimble feet make prints
You are tuned into Sydney's finest FBI radio, 94.5, and I am Ash Berdebiz, and my guest for the past hour has been Kelly Jean Drinkwater, who I've thoroughly enjoyed the company of. Thank you very much. And uh, that last song there, or second last song, I should say, was Björk with Submarine, and you brought that one on, which has very, very aquatic vibes. Mm, that's right. And now we've got time for one final song. Yes. And it's going to be by Glory Hole, and I will give a language warning right now right before now. I forget, because that would be <laughs> that would be mayhem. And uh, now, it is coming into gay, gay Christmas, or is it already gay Christmas well, now? Well, I think, I don't know, mid-Feb to mid-March is gay Christmas in Sydney, and, um, you know, I think it's important that, you know, how uh, to... to to remind people out there that, it, that the Mardi Gras that, that is presented to us is incredibly gay stream and mainstream and it seems to have sold out a lot. So there's a lot going on in Sydney that's actually the antithesis of that. Um, one of those things is uh, around the same night as the parade, um, uh, there's an event called Monster Gras, which is um, put on by the arts collective I work with, the Glitter Militia, and it really is the antidote to... Um, to mainstream Mardi Gras parades, so sponsored by Colt. Yeah, sponsored by Colt, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Wow, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What can you expect from Monster Gras? Oh, Monster Gras is going to be one of the, uh, you know, it's one of, it's, oh, we've, do, we've done it for six years now. I'm performing there. Um, there's lots of amazing DJs. It's an immersive experience. And, um, you know, there'll be DJs' performances and one of the best dance floors you'll ever see, one of the best looking dance floors you'll ever see. Nice. In Sydney, it's at the Red Rattler on the March 5th. All right, Red Rat, March 5th, Monster Gras. And when people want to find it on Facebook, is it, is it hanging around there? It's like, called Monster it... Gras 6 Hexathon. And, um, yeah, you'll be able to find it through either Glitter Militia, me, or the Red Rattler. I have thoroughly enjoyed having you on today, Kelly Jean Drinkwater. And now we've got time for our one last song. And yes. what's it going to be? It's going to be Glory Hole by Glory Hole, who are um, queer punk core punks that I love and adore, each and every one of them. And this song made me was one of the reasons why um, I love living in Sydney. He just confirmed my suspicions that I was in the glory hole. <laughs> 